episode, we talked to Mike O'Brien about the work that he does to help others he has left behind. He works tirelessly, as I said at the end of the first episode, to help people. And he has worked on some very high profile cases, including Jeremy Bamber, Michael Stone, and also the case of Di Morris. This episode was recorded before he died in custody. Also in this episode, we talk about a number of things. We talk about the books that Mike has written. We talk about the other work he's done in terms of being an appropriate adult in a police station and a Mackenzie friend. And we also talk about the death penalty because let's be clear, this isn't a political podcast series, but at the end of the day, think of this. If the death penalty was still in the UK, what would have happened to Mike O'Brien? He would have been executed. What would have happened to the Guildford Four? They would have been executed. The Maguire Seven, the Birmingham Six, Barry George. So lots of the people that we featured would have been executed, but they were innocent. joining me in this second podcast to talk about some of the work that you've done and people that you've helped since you've been released. Tell us a little bit about why you started to become involved in other miscarriage of justice cases. Well, when I was in prison, there was a number of victims of miscarriages of justice, like the Birmingham Six, Guildford Four, Cardiff Three, and they, they helped many people. They did try to help. And I, I made a vow that once I got my name cleared, I would try and do the same. And because of my legal skills, I didn't want to become a lawyer because it means I would have to work with some of the lawyers in Cardiff who put me in prison or were responsible for not defending me properly, at the very least. So, you know, I decided that I was going to use my legal skills to help other people, you know, in the miscarriage of justice world. I was in Wales, you know, I, I identified, you know, Barry George's case straight away as a miscarriage of justice. It was just so obvious to me, and I spoke out about it. Megan and Josie Russell case, uh, the Michael Stone case, I don't know if you're yeah. aware of that one. I am, yeah. That's another one I, I believe is a miscarriage of justice. I worked on that one. I've worked on some very high-profile cases like that. I'm still working on some high-profile cases in Wales at the moment. The Di Morris case, uh, the, the Clutter case. I mean, there was a documentary recently on the BBC one, which found new evidence, which has suggested that Di Morris was innocent. And yet the police come out with it the other day that the CPS did and dismissed that evidence. And I'm like, you know, I, I just can't believe this. And I just, I'm not one of those persons to just walk away feel compelled to help because I know what the families are going through. I know what Di Morris's family is going through, his children. And I know what Di's going through because I've been in this situation. And ironically, he's in the same prison as what I was in, in Long Latin, in Eversham. I just think to myself, I've got the skills, I know how to campaign, I know how to get the media involved, I know how to coordinate everything. And this is what I've been doing, you know, since I, I, I've come off the prison, I haven't stopped. I mean, I think I've done about 34 TV documentaries, you know, radio, you know, as well, you know, radio, TV, I've done all sorts over the years, magazines, FHM magazine I've been in, Front magazine, I mean, in the Times, Telegraph, Express, the Star, you name it, I've done it. And it's not for me, it's for other people, because I feel like I've got a voice and they haven't. And if I can be a vehicle so I can use, so to use their voice to get, try and get them justice, 
And I have to do it. I think that is my mission. When I lost my son, Dylan, in uh, 2012, I wanted to give up something inside. And he said, you can't. And you've got to do something useful. So we set up a charity and, and done something useful. And what I try and do, every negative thing which has happened in my life, I try and turn it into a positive. And by doing what I'm doing, if I can stop one innocent person going to prison or get one innocent person out, then I would have done what I said I was going to do. And I've kept my word. I've probably tried to help between 15 and 100 since I've been out. Wow. That is you know a lot of people. That, that is. And that's just in the criminal courts, you know what I mean? I do help people in the family courts. Yeah, tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, I'm a McKenzie friend. And when people, because there's no legal aid available, I've seen a couple of miscarriages of justices in the family courts. And I recently won a case where a woman hadn't seen her children for five years. False allegations were made against the parents. False allegations were made against the mum. I proved them all wrong. And now she's seeing her children after all this, all this time. She's only just started to see them a couple of weeks ago. And it's a real possibility we can get the children home because yeah. of it. So my legal skills take me into the family courts. I've been in criminal courts. I've been in the civil courts. You know, so it's not, it's not, I'm not just a one trap pony sort of thing. You know what I mean? I, I'm doing quite a lot, which I've taught myself. And I just feel if I see any injustice, whether it's in the civil courts, family courts, and somebody comes to me with a real problem and they've got a case, I will fight them. But then there's the other flip side of the coin where I've had people come to me and they've blatantly wasted my time. Whether they've said their son or daughter is innocent, I've looked at the case, looked at the evidence, I've gone through it. It's taken me six months to go through the whole stuff. And there's been forensic evidence, which has been so damning, I don't know how they had the cheek to even phone me, let alone say there was a miscarriage of justice. And I've had one angry person attack me because I dared to say, I can't help you anymore. There's nothing I can do. And she said, well, you don't believe that my, you know, my son is innocent. And I said, well, after you just hit me with a handbag, no, I don't. So I said, but I knew anyway. And I, and I wasn't polite about it. It was because she caught me. She caught me square on the head. And I, I, and I mean, so... You, you, so she assaulted you? Yeah, she did. I, I, I know she was upset and I can understand that. And maybe she's in denial. And some people are in denial. Not all people want to say that because uh, that's one of the home office's biggest things. I, I was in denial. The Birmingham Six were in denial. Well, we all know we were telling the truth. But there are some people who were in denial. You know, and that was a particular case. Now, I've got no time to help guilty people out of prison. That's not what I'm about. If they are guilty, then they have to take the consequences. It's as simple as that. That's my view. Don't get me wrong. You know, I'm all for prisoners' rights. Everybody knows I've done a lot for prisoners' rights. I've changed the law on access to journalists. I've changed the law six times, seven times altogether, with compensation scheme, evidence of similar fact, and whatever. However, that is a different side of the coin from what I'm working on, you know, because I believe that prisoners should be treated with humanity and dignity. And unfortunately, as I exposed in my book, Prisons Exposed, that isn't always the case. Well, let's talk about the books, because you've written a number of books. One of them is, as you said, called Prisons Exposed. Tell us a little bit about what that book looks at. Well, Prison Exposed looks at the whole criminal justice system. You know, my experiences in top security prisons. I was fed up a year in, it's like porridge. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, Ronnie Barker, you know, a couple of backhanders here, a couple of smokes here, and this, that, and the other. I'm just thinking, you haven't got a clue. 
And when I started talking about what, writing this book, I wanted to show the harsh reality. This is prison on a day-to-day basis. There are stabbings every day. There used to be stabbings every day in the prisons. There used to be slashings. There were, you know, people were dying in prisons, and these are the facts. Children were dying in prison, aged 15 years of age. Gary Wyatt, who I've mentioned in the book, the prison officers, because he wouldn't comply with their lawful order, they bent his thumb back, poked um, the fingers in his eyes and stuff like that to get him to comply with what they wanted him to do. He ended up killing himself. Because there's a lot of suicides, aren't there, in, in prison? But they've been pushed to it by what's happened. Absolutely. And Gary Wyatt's case is one of the saddest cases. A 15-year-old boy, my son is nine. That's only six years younger than my son. And I mean, you know, there's women in prison as well with mental health issues who shouldn't be there. I've talked about the racism in prisons, in the top security prisons. Frankly, prison is probably the worst prison I've ever been in for racism. Because if you're not English, they don't like you. And, you know, they don't like us Welsh, but if you're black, you're in serious trouble. And if you're Asian, you're in trouble. And I put it all in there. I've never been sued for anything that I put in any of my books. And I've invited them to. But they haven't. And the reason why they haven't, because they know I'm telling the truth. You know, I've, I, I was quite shocked to win two awards for the prisons exposed because I've never won anything in my life. You know what I mean? That's not what I'm about. You know, I'm not in for awards and things like that. But the prisons exposed won two international awards. You know, the Book of the Month Award and the Yearly Award. I've been even beat J.K. Rowling, which I was even more shocked. That is, yeah, that is something. Well, well that's some achievement, you know. Uh, so somebody likes my book better than J.K. Rowling's. And uh, wow. I don't know how they worked that one out, but I, I prefer J.K. Rowling's personally. <laughs> more humorous and more fun. But, you know, I wrote it because I wanted to make a difference. I wanted the prison officers to see what they were doing. And I've also put the other side of the coin because I've met a lot of decent prison officers who tried to keep me going when they seen what was going on in prisons. Because not all the prison officers are bad like everybody says they are. You know, you've got this notion that, oh, well, I, when I was a kid, you, you, they used to have ACAB on their uh, hands, all coppers are bastards and stuff like that. And I disagree with that kind of mentality because there are some good coppers out there, there are some good prison officers out there. And you've got to acknowledge that, you know, I mean, some of the good work that prison officers have done to rehabilitate some of these people, like in Grendon Prison, is amazing. And you've got to give credit where credit's due. But in the same token, when things are not going right and, and things are wrong, I'm not shy as telling it like it is either. And I know that you've written a book, you've written two books to do with the police. One that's been published, is it called Ben? Ben, ben Cobb. I, I published that one myself, yeah. I mean, it was a hot potato and not many, it was very controversial because, I, again, I said it like it is and everybody was jumpy that, that they would get sued. And I threw caution to the wind and I thought I'd publish it in America on an American website. So they would have to sue me in America. And unless they got three million, four million pounds, they can't touch me. So I used the law against them on that regard. So I knew they weren't going to sue me because um, Stuart Lewis didn't have that kind of money. So, you know, I played it clever there and played the system, you know, because that's, that's what you want to do sometimes to get things out there. The freedom of speech laws in America are much more adhered to than what they are over here. So I knew that. So I thought, right, then I'll publish this myself. And if I publish it on an American website or whatever, then it comes under American law. 
And I know that you're in the process of publishing another book, which comes out later this year, looking at cases in, in particular in Wales, in South Wales, where there have been miscarriage of justices. Yes, a lot of new evidence in my case, you know, in relation to Inspector Stuart Lewis. I, I mean, we've got an expert report which says that BNL Sherwood couldn't have said those words because if you come from a, a poor background, you don't use the words like, oh, my God, I may have to tell him what happened. You know what I mean? And they're some of the words he used. They're his words. Now, being from Ely, I probably was like, why don't you fucking tell him the truth? So you could clearly see. And this expert was no slouch. He, you know, he worked for the police as well. And if he thought for one moment that confession was true, he would have said so. But he didn't. He said the opposite. So I put the whole report in there. Southwest police are probably going to be livid when they see this report. But not that, not that I'm faced at all, because at the end of the day, the evidence was there. The child Stuart Lewis were perjury, and he got away with it. In your experience, having researched lots of cases, how often has an officer been reprimanded and ended up being charged and convicted with some sort of criminal offence for what they, they did that led to a miscarriage of justice? Well, in the miscarriage of justice world, I, I know only of three police officers who have ever been done in the UK, in Wales, none at all. There's not one police officer, not one solicitor for causing a miscarriage of justice, or barrister for that matter of fact, because some of them, their work has been, you know, you could argue that's because they didn't do their job in defending that they caused a miscarriage of justice. So they, you know, when I'm calling for the judicial inquiry, it's not just into the police, it's into the whole system, the solicitors, what role they played in causing the miscarriages, barristers. So... All that is in the round. So I want to make that clear. You know, it's not, I'm not just going to attack the police because there's more to it than that. Yeah. Only three police officers in the whole of the United Kingdom have ever been done for causing miscarriages of justices. One of them was in the Stephen Kisco case. I believe one officer got sentenced to 15 months. And there was the Jed Coley affair where Jed Coley was a police officer and his own officers framed him for something he didn't do. He got acquitted, and two police officers went to jail for 15 and 18 months, respectively. And that is it. That is the research I have done, and I cannot find out any more information on any of the officers. And when you consider the statistics, which Michael Norton did in when I first come out, 1989, when the Gifford story first broke, 85,000 successful appeals were heard. And these, a lot of these were mundane. They didn't get in the press or anything like that. And only three police officers have ever been done for causing a miscarriage of justice. Now, that was in 1989. We're now in 2021. How many miscarriages of justice have occurred since then? And how many more officers have been done? Well, there hasn't been any. A lot of people will be quite shocked, I imagine, to hear that, bear in mind what you said. But also, I know that because of your experiences, in the police station, help people as an appropriate adult? Yes, I haven't done it for a while, but uh, yeah, I haven't worked in the police station as an appropriate adult, you know what I mean? And there was this one particular case where I caught the sister not being of due diligence, if you like. The, 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 the client confessed in the car to the police officer. You know, the police officer asked him questions. Did you do this? Did you do that? He went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Vulnerable adult as well. When I got him into the police station, I said, did you record it on a piece of paper? 
contemporaneous notes of the conversation you had with my client, mm-hmm. he said no. So I was waiting for the solicitor to jump in and say, well, you can't do that because of O'Brien Sherwood and Hall case at the Court of Appeal. So it was left to me to stand up and say, well, it's an admissible officer. And I had to explain to him what the evidence, you know, that evidence was. And the Court of Appeal turned on and said, unless it's contemporaneously recorded, cannot be used. And that's why they chucked it out. So in this particular case, my first case I ever worked, you know, worked on as an appropriate adult, I had to throw the case out because he'd abused the procedures. So you ended up making the legal representations? In Basically, case. yes. And I, I was only the appropriate adult. People who don't know, just say, could you just sort of explain what an appropriate adult is there to do normally? Well, appropriate adults are only there to monitor and make sure that, uh, you know, that, um, that the, 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 the client, uh, you know, is safe. That there's no underhand tactics by the police, and, and just to be a safeguarder more than it. Nine or ten times you find it's the appropriate adult who seems to say more than what the actual solicitor does, especially in Wales. You know, I can only, I can only go by what I'm saying. You can only you know, go by your own experiences. Yeah, my own experiences. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I haven't done that too often, but I have done it on a couple of occasions. And somebody like me to stand in and watch over them and make sure they're they're being told their rights, etc. Because some of the solicitors are just not doing their job. And that obviously is concerning from your point of view. Absolutely. As someone who has been a victim of miscarriage of justice. And it's also concerning for me as a criminal defence solicitor as well to hear that. But that's the reality of your experiences. We have I, to take that on board. I think some brilliant advocacy work, you know what I mean? Here's what she's done for me, you know, I mean... Brilliant solicitor. She's, I think she's overturned 42 wrongful convictions. I mean, that's a record in itself. She was offered in a, a CBE in the New Year's Honours List. And she told them where to kindly... Um, she turned it down. Yes, yeah, she turned it down on two occasions, yes. So uh, <laughs> we'll be polite about that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know what I mean? Because she's a humble person. And there are some good advocates out there. You always hear about the bad. Sometimes you don't always hear about the good. And there are good solicitors out there, but they're just overworked, underpaid. And it's very difficult when there's only a small pool of dedicated solicitors, if you like, you know, who want want to do well, like yourself. Your latest book um, has recently been published to do with death row, Texas in particular. Yeah. How did you start getting involved with death row cases? It was in long lasting when I seen the plight of a gentleman who was going to be executed and I was horrified. He was protesting his innocence and saying he didn't do it. I later found out that he wasn't telling me the truth. But then I thought, who am I to judge, you know, in my circumstances? And then I thought, does anybody have the right to kill somebody? And I just thought, no, and it just went against everything. I believed it. So I wrote him. We managed to get him a stay of execution. I think it was about 96, 97. Unfortunately, in 2000, even out of appeals, there was nothing we could do and he was executed. And I vowed that when I come out, I would try and do something to change the system. And, you know, there's also a number of other cases that which worry me. The saddest case of all is probably the 14-year-old boy, George Stinney Jr., if anybody wants to look him up. He was a 14-year-old boy. Two young ladies, well, two young girls was killed in the cotton fields. He was blamed for it. He was executed at 14 years of age in the electric chair. 70 years later, they said, whoops, if you can do it. 
And you were telling me earlier about that case because you were saying he, because he was only 14 years old, years old and he was quite little, they had to actually they use a, a Bible. They used a Bible to, to sit him on so the electrons could sit on his head so he could, you know, like, like, like your headphones now, they're sitting comfortably on your head. To get them sitting on his head, probably, they had to use the Bible and the books to make it up because he was so small. And that terrifies me. That that's one thing concerns me in the UK. You know, Priti Patel is on about bringing the death penalty back, mm-hmm. and then she's mentioned that she she would bring it back. She had her way. I would oppose her at every opportunity, of course, and so would many others. Because had the death in place when you were convicted, I would have been executed. You would have been executed. Yeah, absolutely, and my co-accused, and a lot more people. The the, the Guildford Four, Birmingham Six. You know, the Maguire Seven. I, I mean, there's just so many of us who would have been executed. You know, there's a case of the Craven Two, uh, which is an, another case uh, where the police officer was murdered, and the British Secret Service was involved in that. And they've been they've been tapped up. And I mean, that's another case of mine, which I'm taking taking over from Jerry Conlon from the Guildford uh, Four. Unfortunately, Jerry died, and I'm just trying to support them as well. And uh, that's another case; they would be executed. Jeremy Bamba would have been executed. Another case I'm with, a high profile case. I mean, it's just so many people who would have been executed. And what, there's no coming back from that. No. There's uh, uh, no, uh, no good apologising 30 years later like they did uh, in the other case that you mentioned. Well, it's Mahmoud Matan as well from Cardiff. He was the last man to be hung in Cardiff. 1952, which also killed Lily Volopert. They found out in 1998 that he didn't do it. His case was sent back to the Court of Appeal and the conviction was quashed. But you can't think about saying, oh, here we go. we'll give you a job, we'll give you some money, we'll give you a car. He's dead. No. There's nothing. You can't take it. It's the ultimate penalty, you know? Absolutely. And I don't think we should be playing cards, you know, with people's lives. I don't think that makes us just as bad as um, the person who maybe have killed somebody, you know, we're just as bad as them. Mike, what would you say to someone who finds himself arrested and detained in a police station? What would your advice be? In hindsight, have you experienced what you experienced? My advice would be, if I was arrested for something I hadn't done again, I would say no comment all the way through. And the reason why I say no comment all the way through is because then they can't fabricate stuff. And it makes it more difficult for them to, to add words to a confession which you haven't even met, said anything about. Or, you know, like, because I, I was so honest and told them what had happened, you know, with the card, you know, after six pages of my interview, I said, listen, I've lied about this. Because of the car we stole on the night in question. And I told them the truth. Where did my honesty get me? It didn't get me anywhere. It got me a life sentence for telling the truth. So why would I want to engage with the police in any way, shape or form? And my advice would be no comment all the way. And what would your advice be to someone who is sitting in their cell as we speak, having been wrongly convicted for a criminal offence? I think you've got to take the lead like I did. You've got to pick up the pen. You've got to write to people, write to journalists, MPs. You've got to write to everybody you can think of, even members of the European Parliament, which we managed to get raised in, you know, as well, and stuff like that, you know, which I managed to do, managed to do as well. And you've got to take a You've got to know your own case. You don't rely on the solicitor to do everything for you. You've got to get a set of case papers, really from cover to cover, and write all the different discrepancies and everything and where you could possibly find new evidence. And that's what I would recommend to any educate yourself. 
I never wrote a letter in my life before I went to prison. I couldn't write a letter properly. I think my first letter was, my name is Michael O'Brien. I'm known as one of the Cardiff News Agent 3. I got wrongly convicted of so-and-so, so-and-so. Could you please help me? And that was about it. But I had to start somewhere. And my advice would be education. Get on education lessons. If you haven't got uh, any qualifications, get some. Because there are opportunities in the prisons. I don't know whether they still are as much as, you know, probably I've done a lot of damage. So uh, probably there's one of the Michael O'Brien coming behind them. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, if, there, if there is the opportunities there, take them and take control of your case and then get your family involved, get the local media involved, you know, and that's how we started our campaign and everything. I wouldn't advise going on hunger strike. They're very painful after 14, 15, very uncomfortable. And the only person you're beating up is yourself. So I wouldn't go down the same roads on that one when I went down, you know, but I felt at the time that was the only way, but there are other ways. And educating yourself and studying law helped me tremendously. And I would recommend that to everybody who's been saying they're only convicted. And I do hope they take me up on that. Mike, thank you ever so much for talking to us over these two podcasts because your um, story is harrowing. But uh, one of the things that comes across is that you never gave up hope and you fought for yourself at every stage you could and did everything you could. And you haven't given up hope for other people. So hopefully those who are listening not only will realise that this has happened in the UK, there are people who are wrongly convicted, but it will also give hope to others who are trying to fight uh, the system and prove that they didn't commit the crimes they're in prison for. I agree. If anybody wants any information about how to, how to fight the campaign, there's quite a lot of information in my book, The Death of Justice. I've tried to write it to help other people as well. It wasn't just my story. I wanted it to be like a little guide on how you can do things for yourself. So I do hope if anybody wants a copy of the book, you know, I, I, and if somebody wants to write to me or, or anything like that, I've got, a, I've got a few copies which I can give them at a discount. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much. I'd like to take this opportunity again to thank Mike for all that he has done to help me with this podcast series. And in the next episode, we talk to two people who run the Cardiff Innocent Project, Dr. Dennis Eady and Dr. Holly Greenwood. And of course, Dr. Dennis Eady was someone that helped and campaigned Mike's release when he was a victim of a miscarriage of justice and serving time for a crime he didn't commit. Talk to them about the work that they do with the students. And we talk to them about two success stories they've had when Dwayne George, conviction was eventually overturned and there is a connection with the Barry George case about what happened there and we also talked to them about the case of Gareth Jones. I know having represented people who have been falsely accused of sex offences but it has a devastating effect on their lives and they were very much involved in helping overturn the conviction of Gareth Jones. So the next episode gives a real insight into what students and other people can do to help those who have been wrongfully convicted.